0: It's that to get to the regime you have to endanger your soul by violating the strictures of your faith. That's a pretty powerful counterargument. You combine the infeasibility with the regime by pointing out the means that are required to
1: arrive at it. Welcome to Line, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. The 20th century featured an unusual phenomenon, global secularizing movements. In the 19th century, these movements were confined mostly to Western Europe. But in the 20th century, they exploded, suppressing the influence of religion around the world. In some milder cases, as in Turkey and India, They suppressed only the political expression of the great religions. In other cases, such as Soviet Union and Mao's China, ferocious religious persecution was a daily occurrence. In light of new political realities, however, older religious traditions are beginning to take back their influence in the public square. And they are doing so by rejecting the liberalism they see as their oppressor. In this episode, we're bringing you a recent Acton Lecture Series talk from Dr. Kevin Vallier, who discusses these different anti-liberal movements, critiques them, and explains how Christian liberals can understand and engage with them. To learn more about upcoming Acton Lecture Series events, visit our website at acton.org. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org/actonline. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a 5-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Act in Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen.
2: My name is Dan Churchwell and I have the pleasure of serving as the director of programs and education here at the Acton Institute. It's just a delight to introduce uh, Dr. Kevin Vallier. Who is recently a new affiliate scholar with Acton, and so he uh, will—he's minted a, a more of a formal contract with us, and we'll be doing a lot more great work, speaking and writing on our behalf. So we're absolutely delighted to have Dr. Kevin Vallier today, who is a professor of philosophy at Bowling Green State University, where he directs the program in philosophy, politics, and economics. His interests lie primarily in political philosophy, ethics philosophy, and religion. So a small topic, not, not a lot covered there. But uh, he is the author of over four monographs, five edited volumes, and over 50 peer-reviewed journal, uh, cha- or book chapters and journal articles, which his latest we have over here for purchase entitled, All the Kingdoms of the World on Radical Religious Alternatives to Liberalism and which addresses, which we'll hear more about today, the radical religious alternatives to liberalism in America. So please give a warm Acton welcome to Dr. Kevin Vallier. So today we're going to talk
0: a bit about uh, religious anti-liberalism, um, which I'll explain, but I think we need some stage setting uh, before we get uh, there. So long ago, the great world religions governed the human race, their power limited only by one another. Hinduism, Confucianism, Buddhism, Taoism, Zoroastrianism, we shouldn't forget they were once very influential, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam created great civilizations that infused human lives with sacredness and meaning. The great faith shaped our laws, our morals, and our cultures. They crafted our art, architecture, and clothes, our homes, our weapons, our food, our language, and even our thoughts. These doctrinal phase arose from a universal human tendency to religious belief. The great evolutionary psychologist Robin Dunbar writes, quote, For as long as history has been with us, religion has been a feature of human life. There is no known culture for which we have an ethnographic or an archeological record that does not have some religion. No culture for which we have a record does not have some religion. Even in today's secular cultures, many people remain devout. Nations like the United States, which seem to secularize, might instead be in the process of rejecting Christian beliefs for more eclectic spirituality. Like religion, politics has been humanity's constant companion. Like religion, every society has it. How then should we expect average humans to approach political life? What are their political aspirations and needs? And how do they articulate their political ideas? For the vast majority of human history, religion answered, um, for the vast majority of human history, religion helped answer these questions. And in many places, religion answered them in full. Now, today, many see religion as a private affair, but this view is peculiar. If you think your religion is true, it should, of course, shape political order. Consequently, it is more common for religion to be a purely public matter than a strictly private one. The human default is to form societies that interweave the sacred and the secular. Societies that separate religion and politics are the outliers. So where do they come from? The world began to change around 250 years ago, first in Western Europe. Christian infighting and the birth of modern science created non-religious ideologies. The first we call liberalism. Liberalism uh, defends human freedom, human equality, that is equal rights, religious toleration, and the fundamental harmony of human interests. They include left liberals who stress the important economic equality, approach religion and politics with skepticism, and stress the importance of using democracy to control the ills of the market. But other liberals, whom we call classical liberals, stress economic freedom and de-emphasize social equality. They welcome religious influences in politics and highlight the self-regulating power of markets and their creative power to serve our needs and the limitations of democracy with regard to improving economic outcomes. Nonetheless, There are still many liberals who share the same underlying values, even if they express them differently. The classical liberal tradition arose first, but many liberals gradually moved left in response to challenges for the next major non-religious political ideology, socialism. Socialists also preach liberty and equality, but they view society in much more conflictual terms. They cast history often as a contest between the oppressed and oppressors. Now, socialists come in great variety. Some favor parliamentary democracy, while others insist that democracy is a smokescreen for capitalist domination. Some favor change through reform, while others insist on socialist revolution. Yet they often share a hostility to religion. Consequently, democratic socialists approach religion and politics as liberals do in some cases, but Marxists usually seek religion's annihilation. Liberalism and socialism have both fought established religion, but in different ways. Too many liberals have sought to privatize religion, and too many socialists have sought to uproot it altogether. Now, liberals and socialists have often been religious themselves, but overall they have sought to limit the role of religion in public life in many cases, especially, for instance, French liberalism, I think is the example here. And then in the 19th century, liberalism and socialism colonized European elites. In the 20th century, they divided the world between them and crushed the political power of the great world religions. Often, socialists hunted religion to extinction. Many liberals, mostly secular ones, were gentler. They usually settled for a domesticated faith that prioritizes liberal values. But if religion is a human universal that invariably shapes politics, liberal and socialist victories were at best temporary, and that is what we see in the 21st century. Now that socialism has by and large evaporated, the great religions recover their political expression, and often, but not always, to re-establish religion with coercion and to limit religious freedom. It's important not to let the United States and Western Europe preclude our vision. Take a global perspective. You may know that many in Poland and Hungary trade liberal democracy for more illiberal politics. The Soviet Union was once the world's leading atheist federation. Today, Russia returns to Orthodox Christianity. China contains a plurality of the world's atheists, but Xi Jinping has had to adopt Maoist methods to control popular religion. He has had to supplement flagging Marxism with Confucianism. The 21st century has seen a dramatic revival of Confucian thought. Muslims have fought secularizing forces for decades, often with great success, such as in Iran. Western liberal hopes for a modern Islam remain unfulfilled. Indeed, some Muslim regimes de-secularize, like Turkey. It's India that surprises me the most. Its elite faces a robust challenge from the Hindutva, the Hindu nationalist movement, who are now, and many of them are, India's elites. But one of the world's most ancient civilizations had adopted a kind of mix of liberalism and socialism. India was supposed to prove that Western political ideas had universal appeal. But today, we have to worry a little bit about that. Human religiosity persists, and the many adherents of the great faiths have renewed their political ambitions. It's liberalism alone that prevents them pre-conquering politics. A, cent- a central question for 21st century humanity is whether liberalism can succeed. Another question is whether it deserves to. Today, liberalism has become associated with abstract academic theorizing. Too many liberals obsess over esoteric debates about sex and gender, that make no sense to most humans. Consider the bizarre skeptical of Russian President Vladimir Putin complaining that transgender activists have mistreated famed children's book author, J.K. Rowling. Why does Putin care? I don't think he really does. He wants to delegitimize liberal order by drawing attention to its flaws. And so in many respects, the authoritarians of the world are on offense. They smell liberal weakness, but they must grapple with liberalism's historical achievements. In most places, liberalism was a practical program of reform. Liberals sought to protect human liberty from concentrated and arbitrary power. Liberals promulgated religious toleration, challenged state absolutism, helped abolish slavery and pioneered the liberation of women. Liberalism defeated fascism and communism and created the post-war World War II human rights regime. The liberals helped lift billions out of grinding poverty by defending the market economy And while today's anti-liberals can't say one nice thing about liberal order, liberalism delivers. Of course, we can't whitewash liberal history. Beyond their frequent intolerance of religion, in many cases, liberals have sometimes taken up unjust causes. Imperialism, colonialism, eugenics, and an indifference to the unborn have been problems. But I think in the main, the liberal tradition has made humans better off. And yet today, liberalism somehow no longer inspires. Fewer and fewer people claim their mantle, and many young people abandon liberalism for other doctrines, on the left and the right. I mean, the the Israel-Hamas war has made that as obvious as it could be. But if we lose liberalism, we may lose its achievements, and the rapid expansion of freedom, equality, and prosperity may reverse liberals did not anticipate the challenges that followed the demise of socialism. For centuries, many liberals have predicted the end of religion, again, too many, or they comforted themselves with a belief that religion would become private. It is socialism that enabled that illusion to endure. But if, as Dunbar argues, religion is a human universal, liberals face a grave global challenge. We must accept the permanence of religious belief, as many of you do, and I do, and accommodate those who would give political expression to their faith, and we must do so while preserving liberalism's concrete achievement. To do this, liberals must finally shed their hostility to religion, which of course, I think there's broad agreement on here. Millions of people of faith mistrust liberalism, viewing it as a covert but aggressive secularizing ideology. We have to dispel this suspicion or discredit ourselves. As Robert Frost once said, a liberal is a person who can't take his own side in a quarrel. Fortunately, nobody says this anymore, but that was the liberal promise. Liberal order should be a diverse and open inquiry into better ways of living together. Liberals should reclaim intellectual humility and curiosity and engage those eager for liberalism to follow socialism into oblivion. So my book is an attempt to practice what I preach. I'm taking religious anti-liberalism's Seriously, And I think they have some potent arguments because they're doctrines that are drawing on the accomplishments of great civilizations and retain their capacity to generate intense political passion. While the anti-liberals are wrong, I think we must honor them anyway. And as a Christian and a liberal who has studied these doctrines, I think that we can do it. And so I focus on the strongest religious opposition to liberalism, the most radical, now, as I explain these doctrines, it's important that we not dismiss their kind of main claim, which is that we need a coercive establishment of religion in order to promote the spiritual good of human beings. That's wrong. We should defend religious freedom. But it's important to understand what's driving them. Non-Marxist anti-liberalism on the right are not mere impulses or hatreds. As New York University law professor Stephen Holmes argues, it is a resilient, diverse, fairly consistent, unbroken intellectual tradition. And I deepen Holmes's claim in the book. Religious anti-liberalisms draw on ancient and sophisticated theologies. Now I can't address all of these doctrines. So in the book I decided to focus on the new form of Catholic anti-liberalism known as Catholic integralism. Integralism has intrinsic interest to me But it also illustrates the strengths and weaknesses of religious anti-liberalisms as a class. So what's integralism? Well, here's a gloss. Catholic integralists say that government must secure the earthly and the heavenly common good. God authorizes two powers to do so, they say. The state governs in matters temporal and the church in matters spiritual. Since the church has a nobler purpose than the state, salvation it may authorize and direct the state to support it with certain policies, such as enforcing church law. If, for instance, the church fails to successfully uh, bring someone to repentance through excommunication, these are folks that say, well, they can call on the state to apply civil penalties to those individuals. So the book has two goals, to assess religious anti liberalisms as a class, but also to focus on Catholic anti-liberalism. But I ultimately compare integralism with its cousins in Sunni Islam and Chinese Confucianism. And the book culminates in a kind of anti-liberal framework, a set of arguments that allow liberals and non-liberals to communicate. And so I'll explain it to you even though I'll have to remain at a pretty general level. The religious anti-liberals have two main arguments for their position, what I'll call history and symmetry arguments. The history arguments are very, very important. The anti-liberals are those that say, we are the ones following our faith into politics. We're not trying to distort our faith to fit our preconceived politics. And I will say as a liberal, there are all too many people in the liberal tradition who have done just that. So the anti-liberal says, look, you're not taking your faith seriously in politics, we are. And they claim, in many cases, that history and dogma and their religions supports them. Now, they're very often, in fact, usually incorrect about this, but that's a huge part of what's driving them, the the sense that they have of themselves of following their faith wherever it leads, even if it leads in ways that make them politically unpopular. There is a kind of strange courage here, but that's one thing that has to be engaged up front. The symmetry arguments are a little bit more complex, but here's how they go. Most people of faith throughout human history have thought that it's the job of government to, prevent, uh, to uh, promote uh, the authentic human good for the individual and the community. That's been the idea. The doctrine of natural rights that many of us support uh, took a little bit of time uh, to come about. But of course, the great religions believe that there's both a temporal, that is earthly, common good, but also a spiritual one, an eternal common good. And so if the state should promote the natural good of human beings, surely it should promote the supernatural. If the state is involved in securing health, why isn't it involved in securing salvation? Salvation is an infinite good. Health, merely a temporal one. And so the anti-liberal says, we treat all of these goods symmetrically. We think the state should be involved in promoting them all. It doesn't make any sense not to. The supernatural goods are too important. They are of infinite duration. They outweigh anything that states do in the natural realm. Now, if you go religion by religion, there's very different ways of thinking about this. In the Catholic tradition, states can't do this on their own. They're not allowed to. Um, The common belief, among Catholic anti-liberals, is that Jesus's general mission led him to claim authority over the good of religion. And that um, was given to the church. So the church has to authorize states to promote the spiritual good. Nonetheless, symmetry arguments are what motivate a great many young integralists. And I've I've talked to them. Many of them don't wanna get into the details of various papal encyclicals. What they want, as they've told me, is the state to preach the gospel. I know to many of us that sounds like a very bad idea, Um, but this is what drives them. This is what what motivates them. So the first two parts of the framework are the history and symmetry arguments. These are the arguments that you're going to hear from the anti-liberals. We follow the religion wherever it leads, and we care about the whole human good, and you don't. That's the driving force. Now, how can we respond? What are useful criticisms? Well, there are three. The first I call the transition arguments. We live in a diverse and complex social world. But the anti-liberals are proposing the reestablishment, the coercive reestablishment of religion. Transitioning to a society that would even begin to stabilize those claims requires radical cultural and spiritual revolution. And in fact, many of the anti-liberals will say, well, until there is say a Confucian revival, We've kind of got to shelve this. There are some American Catholic integralists that are different. They think that so long as you capture elites, most people are sheep and will follow. But even many of the integralists will say, look, no, we have to have an underlying revival. And while I support a Christian revival at the spiritual level, how could I not? Um, The idea that we're gonna get to a place as a church where we would benefit and profit from the state establishing a religion is so far away from where we are now that these views just seem totally infeasible. But plenty of people grasp the infeasibility of these regimes. Here's what's significant about them. To get to those regimes in modern diverse societies, there has to be violence because there's too many people that would resist. And in many cases, the use of violence is totally incompatible with the religion in question. So for instance, what it would take to establish a Catholic integralist regime today would require levels of violence that Catholic social thought and moral teaching prohibit. So it's not merely that you can't get to the regime because it's infeasible. It's that to get to the regime, you have to endanger your soul by violating the strictures of your faith. That's a pretty powerful counterargument. You combine the infeasibility with the regime by pointing out the means that are required to arrive at it. Now, many integralists, young integralists, are more romantic in character. They've told me, well, we don't know how to transition to this, but maybe God will bless us with the destruction of liberalism and the establishment of an integralist regime. Integralism is at the very least still an ideal. It's still what is best overall for human beings. And so it is sort of our guiding star. It's, it's telling us um, what the human good requires even if we're far away from it. And so in the book, I focus on the ideal. It's not enough, I think, to just say we can't get to it. I want to address the people that say, we don't know how to get to it, but it's still the best. And so there's two more arguments to give. The first is what I call a stability argument. And that is that these regimes systematically tend to degrade into pretty mild forms of themselves. And part of this is because of the development of pluralism. So think about it this way, of the Catholic states that were not taken by Protestantism or Islam or secularism, every last one moved away from anything like integralism. All of them. And part of this had to do with the fact that there were persistent religious minorities and suppressing them was not worth it suggesting the instability of these regimes. You get there, you can't stay there. The third group of final argument is the justice argument. And the justice argument is simply the claim that many of these religions claim to respect the equal dignity of the person, but they end up treating members of the religion and members outside the religion unequally. I think this is clearest in Islam, but it's also clear in Catholic integralism in a strange way. It's really only the baptized that gets subject to all the religious coercion. So it's actually kind of strange that insiders are actually in a certain sense treated worse than outsiders. So the idea is that these doctrines have a kind of internally inconsistent claim to justice. So that's the anti-liberalism framework as I see it. This is what I think can allow liberals to engage anti-liberals. There's the history and symmetry arguments for the position, and then the transition stability and justice arguments against it. That is the overall framework, and I'm happy to talk about how it applies um, in specific cases. I wanna end by talking about how liberals can adapt further, because a conversation isn't enough. Liberalism has always been the most adaptable of the great ideologies. Some have tried to merge it with socialism, some have tried to merge it with conservatism. And in many cases, liberals effectively adapt. And my view is that we have to adapt again. The changes I propose today, I think um, many of you will find them congenial, but many liberals would not. The first of these is the idea of a liberal alliance. The number of liberals people really committed is shrinking. And many people are revealing themselves not to have liberal commitments at all. This is true on the right, but it's also true on the left. And while I disagree with many left liberals about markets and the welfare state, I do think that we still have to work together in order to preserve the ideals of a free society. I see a lot of that happening now. This is something that could not have been done 10 to 15 years ago. And I know it's something that people on both sides greet with a lot of skepticism. But I think that we need one another now, um, and that's going to be a pretty important way going forward. The third or the second thing that I wanna propose is this. If religious anti-liberalism isn't going away, how do we give these people an outlet for their political ideals? And here I think we can appeal to the classical liberal tradition, appeal to the idea of significant federalism, that if these groups are able to form their own polities or charter cities, As far-fetched as that may seem in some ways, it actually isn't. Historically, there have been plenty of free cities. There have been charter cities. There there are still today very small states. And there's no reason that larger liberal societies can't accommodate these groups by giving them some degree of political autonomy. Now, there are many anti-liberals that would not be satisfied with that at all. They think the liberal state is too dangerous and venomous, and they propose that liberalism must be defeated. In fact, as one integralist put it, the liberal faith must be seared with hot irons. But I think there are many religious anti-liberals that would think, okay, this is better. And I think that gives people a kind of spiritual outlet in a way that I think would take a lot of the threat to the ideals of a free society away. But the third thing that I wanted to propose is this. In liberal history, when there have been challenges, liberals have been willing to do the hard intellectual work of an uh, kind of engagement with anti-liberal ideas
2: or um,
0: with any particular challenge to liberalism. And liberals, I think, are actually pretty good historically of saying, look, um, let's talk, let's have a conversation. In the 21st century, we're going to have to do something different than, say, the liberal engagement or fight with socialism uh, and the liberal conversation with conservatism. Now we require a conversation with those people that really think they're fundamentally opposed to what we believe, but in many cases I think are quite confused uh, about what liberals believe, including classical liberals. We need a place where Christians in particular and liberals can encounter one another, where they can talk and come to a greater understanding. But you already understand that, because that place is this place. The Acton Institute for decades has been doing work that almost nobody else is doing. But I believe with the global rise of religious anti-liberalisms, things like Acton University, where I can meet priests from all over the world, who else is doing that? If we have to or we want to preserve the ideals of the free and open society, this encounter has to happen because we have to better understand people who are skeptical of the free society. But again, I don't have to tell you that because that place is this place. The work that's being done is, again, it's more important than ever. So my work critiques anti-liberalism, but I still want these anti-liberals to be able to thrive. I also want to resist and perhaps even forestall new global and religious and political conflicts. To me, that is what it means to be a liberal to pursue the ever present possibility of peace. Thank you
1: Thank you for your talk um, Would
3: you it'd be helpful to me, maybe others if you would give a definition of liberalism mm-hmm. and uh is the The old liberalism, the same as liberalism today.
0: Yeah, so what I've tried to do, um, maybe it went by too quickly early on in the talk, but I think of the liberal tradition broadly um, as a commitment to four kinds of values uh, in terms of the um, specification of what government does. First, if liberalism is anything, it's a protection of individual liberty, right? That's the first and foremost commitment. But the liberal tradition has disagreed a great deal about what the proper conception of liberty is, Um, I also think there's a commitment to human equality, but liberals have disagreed a great deal about what that means. Many of us think, well, that's the liberalism of equal rights, of equal opportunity. Others think it's something more like equal shares. There's been a real discussion of religious toleration that goes back for centuries. Take, for instance, the contrast between the way that the U.S. and France has worked it out. Um, The liberal tradition on the continent has tended to be a lot more hostile to faith than, say, the United States. But they're still understanding that as a kind of toleration, however mistaken that may be. And the final thing that I think comes out really clearly among classical liberals is the idea that society can be organized as a system of mutual advantage. The liberalism's the win-win ideology, right? It's, it's the group that says society can be a positive sum game. So those are the four, I think, central liberal values. But I think that there are people that are liberal that have other interpretations. But I do think that there is a continuity to the liberal tradition that um, does include a great deal of disagreement, for instance, about uh, economic, economic matters. So my interests have been, again, uh, in classical liberalism for most of my career. But in trying to understand uh, liberalism broadly, that's, what I, that's how I would understand it.
1: You mentioned the concept of
0: an independent charter city. Could you elaborate on that? Sure. Right now, there's a number of libertarians off the coast of Honduras that are try- have established a charter city called Prospero. Um, I'm still working it out, and I'm, I'm paying quite a bit of attention. But I think that if you look at small states, you look at the history of free cities, for instance, um, what you see is a kind of internal autonomy, although in many cases, thereby, I say, a friendly larger society, um, where there would be the power, real power of self-governance, a real political independence. Um, There'd still be, I think, a kind of unity with a broader political order. Another analogy I like to use in this case are, and this is a little fraught, of the uh, Native American reservations. Now, they don't at all work how they're supposed to. But the idea of some kind of free state is something that classical liberals have proposed for a long time. Of course, you have the Free State Project in New Hampshire. Uh, for instance. So I think that classical liberals have done a great deal of thinking uh, about how that would work. Opportunities, of course, are limited, but I don't think it's anything new to propose. So hopefully that gives you a little bit more of a sense of what uh, I'm after.
4: Kevin, thank you so much for your talk. Um, This was wonderful. Um, And you make a very good point that a lot of these religious anti-liberalisms across the board make these historical claims. Um, and there are certainly grounds for many of them. But yes. when there's also people like Lord Acton makes, the, makes arguments that he tries to ground a sort of liberalism in the New Testament. Uh, Wilhelm Rupke does this also. Um, and then you have people like Swami Vivekananda, the Indian nationalist who tries to ground these in the Upanishads. You have scholars like Mustafa Akul, who's going back to early sources in Islam. Do you, what what do you make of the merits of this historical argument? And what do you make of the sort of folks within the liberal tradition who have tried to ground their conceptions of liberalism through a faithful, what they believe is to be a faithful understanding of their own religious traditions?
0: I mean, unfortunately, in many cases, the liberals that are doing this well are a pretty small group. But of course, I believe in that project. Um, And there actually are a number of people in the Islamic world like Rashad Ganoushi, who's sadly a political prisoner now um, in Tunisia, where he was the uh, head of their general assembly for some time. And he's got a new treatise, Public Freedoms uh, in the Islamic State. It's actually a new translation of an older book that tries to lay out a kind of ideal of Islamic democracy. So he still thinks Islam has to be the established religion, but he's pushing Islam, for instance, in a more uh, democratic direction. So there are a lot of moderates I think, in, in, these, uh, in these movements um, that can be reached out to. Um, and I think that can sort of help us figure out more broadly how to reach those that we're least sympathetic to. But it is very, very important that people in the liberal tradition are doing this hard intellectual work like so many have. I mean, I, I, mean, I think Locke is like this. I don't think he has a, a, there's not a predecessor liberalism that he's trying to synthesize. It just sort of comes out of his work. I mean, there's really interesting figures like Roger Williams, who's coming into the founder of Rhode Island. I mean, who's coming to liberal ideas and religious toleration from like a pretty seriously Calvinist commitment. Um, So, yeah, there's definitely that strand um, and we definitely um, should welcome and study that. But, of course, again, that's one of the other things that I don't have to tell any of you. But when I speak to other audiences, they often have no they really don't really have any idea that it's being done because the opinion is so polarized. To the anti-liberal, there's the liberals who are distorting the religion, and then there's them who aren't. Um, but yeah, in the book, I try to make the best case I can, particularly with the uh, Catholic integralism for the historical case. Um, I think it, it really underdetermines what kind of regime we should have. Uh, but my broader thought, I think, um, is that, yeah, we're going to have to do more as classical liberals to spread those ideas, but you know that's new that 's news <laughs> to a lot of to a lot of places, even if it isn 't news uh, to this audience thanks for a very engaging talk My question and I know you 've studied the integralists
4: so my question to our Catholic integralist friends is how do you sort of uh, confirm liberalism's genius for checking power either through the marketplace or checks and balances in our government structure. What does the integralist do about the problem of the libido dominandi?
0: Yeah, I mean, this question comes up, but their view is that liberalism has a kind of genius. And the genius of liberalism is tricking people to think that it's not a religion. It disguises itself as neutral in some ways, protecting freedom, but it's anything but. And the chief liberals, the liberal elites, are every bit as authoritarian as they say the integralists are. I'm I'm channeling the integralists, right? I'm giving you my view. So their view is there's really no alternative to some kind of severe course of establishment and that liberal regimes haven't actually limited government. What they've done is attacked and limited the church. They've turned the church into a mere voluntary association in society, and that's the way that liberalism tries to kind of neuter a really strong faith. One of the things I've been studying lately with some new uh, histories of liberalism that have come out is the history of Catholic and classical liberal interactions in France, because usually we tell an Anglophone story, right? We focus on liberalism in the English-speaking world, Um, but... A lot of the Catholic anti-liberalism that came out in the 19th century was looking at how French revolutionary liberals behaved. Um, And if you're really focused on them and you think they're the essence of liberalism, we're just deceiving ourselves. Maybe we're less bad, but Robespierre, that's what liberalism is in their minds. Now that's not true. But that's, uh, that's how they think, I think. That's, it's, liberalism is not really limiting government. It's just establishing another religion and lying to everyone about it.
5: Hi, Kevin. Hey. Um, so I'm Dylan. I work here at Acton. Um, I, I have a, a, another question related to these, this charter city idea, because I, I like that it's, it's trying to give people space to be weird. And clearly these, you know, maybe that's not the most charitable term, but I don't take it as a negative. These people want to be weird and they're upset that everyone isn't letting them um, and that they don't get to force other people to be weird with them. Um, But I wonder what's the limiting principle to that? You know, so if, if in a hypothetical, you know, Integralists were able to establish the city of New Vatican, Pennsylvania... Would the Pope of New Vatican, Pennsylvania, get to kidnap a Jewish baby baptized without his parents' consent? Because while it's baptized and now the state, the city has to care for it and so on and so forth, um, to draw from a historical example. Um, Is that something that, well, we got it, it's their charter city, we got to just let them do that. Those are their rules. Um, And if not, would they be satisfied? Yeah, so
0: um, I would not, by any stretch of the imagination, be among the first classical liberals to grapple with that question. Robert Nozick and Chendron this does uh, in their books. So, you know, Nozick was a great libertarian philosopher, the challenger of John Rawls in the late 20th century. Um, and in his book, Anarchy, State, and Utopia, everyone reads the anarchy and state part. They don't read the utopia part. And Nozick says that utopia is a utopia of utopias. And... What he postulates is that you have to allow a lot of variation so long as everyone has freedom of exit, a really effective freedom of exit. And Chandra Kugathus, in his book, "The Liberal Archipelago," gives us a similar vision, right The archipelago, right, of course, being that lots of different diverse regimes. But he says, as long as there's freedom of exit, that that's OK. Now, two problems. One, from a left liberal perspective, that's going to allow a lot of local oppression. And so left liberals are going to tend to resist this proposal. I think there can be good practical arguments made uh, to, to persuade them uh, that freedom of exit can go further. Um, and the anti-liberals themselves, I think some of them would be okay with freedom of exit. But it, yes, you're right. At some point, you know, liberals have to draw a line somewhere. You can't give them everything but I think the main thing that has to be done is to secure freedom of exit. Although an interesting discussion with some integralists have said, well, I mean, if you violate canon law and then you run away, that's a little bit like uh, treason. So, you know, if you, you commit treason and then you leave, the feds can hunt you down wherever they go. And I thought, you know, well, we would probably have to protect against that
1: too. <laughs> so you alluded at the end of your talk to um, the issue of religious minorities. How do anti-liberals propose dealing with um, religious minorities in their midst? Um, should they have, have the regime? And um, how does that differ if they do have any vision for religious freedom from, for instance, the American free exercise tradition? Um, and is the difference one of kind or, or one of degree? I'm
0: just curious your thoughts on that. Well, it is one of kind, um, and the true answer to this is varies a lot with the Religion. So if we focus on the Catholic case, here's the ideal. The unbaptized have a total freedom of religion so long as the exercise of religious freedom doesn't violate natural law and they aren't trying too hard to pick off the faithful. The baptized are another story. If the church authorizes a Christian state in order to help its spiritual mission by backing the canon law with the civil code. Um, Then you could apply religious coercion to the baptized for grave sin, for apostasy, for heresy. So you get really limited religious liberty for the baptized in the name of helping them to achieve their spiritual ends. And you get a lot of religious freedom for the unbaptized. Now that's never how it worked. All you have to do, for instance, is look at the history of the Jewish ghettos in the papal states and you'll get a sense for how it would almost certainly work. Um, and so I think that, you know, but that's the line. The line is, well, you know, we were really bad at that. But if we do it again, you know, it'll, it'll be better. And then, of course, there's always the response. And liberalism's really, really bad. Way, way worse, right? The conversations are always, well, we may have this problem, but liberalism is, is worse or what have you. Um, but, no, this is the general issue. And I think in Islamic states, obviously, like, this is a a pressing issue for with given the greater burdens, say tax burdens, um, that are placed on religious minorities as as well. Confucianism and and Hinduism are actually, at least in theological principle, a bit better uh, on the score. Although, of course, you know, what's going on with Indian Muslims in India is not exactly a good sign. Uh, So I really do think, you know, intellectually and practically that the permanence of religious pluralism, is ultimately the regime uh, the reason many of these regimes decayed, because suppressing them was too hard. You know, Mark Koyama, who has a really nice book uh, on the history of uh, religious freedom from, from an economic history perspective, he even points out the enormous economic consequences of the Spanish Inquisition, because huge numbers of extremely talented people actually left. And he argues that this has had a, actually a really serious economic cost. Um, so well, well, the other problem was a kind of moral cost because the thought was, well, you could suppress, say, Protestantism without too much bloodshed. But, of course, that was not true um, unless you basically took out the Protestants extremely early on, like a lot of Spain did. Um, so, but it requires brutality. Even I don't think many of these folks want to be brutal. I don't think that's their aim or hope. They hope that it'll be something more like the Soviet Union's collapse right the state won't collapse but marxist ideology collapsed and there are a number of people who were committed to liberal democracy that they were able to go in capture the state and transform right this is what i think they're hoping will occur that the religion that is liberalism will undermine itself because of its own internal contradictions here they're actually drawing a bit on marx a bit um, and so I think what they're hoping will happen is that when liberalism is discredited, then they'll be able to, uh, uh, to, to move forward. But in actual practice, no, it's going to require a lot, of, a lot of violence. Although, I mean, I don't see how integralists get past step one, because the only way to make this work is the church has to authorize the state to use physical coercion. And I mean, imagine this with Pope Francis, who has privately called integralism a plague, Um, if you imagine, I mean, there's 5,600 bishops in the Catholic church. Well, how would you get to integralism being okay? Okay. Some of them, none of them are integralists from what we know, like openly anyway, 5,600 bishops all over the world. Somehow they have to be chosen as cardinals in enough numbers to elect an integralist pope. And remember, they're going to have many priorities in electing a pope. So this would have to be a big priority for them. And then the integralist pope would have to change the law and their relationships to various states in light of Catholicism being a global faith and in light of understanding that the way in which the Vatican conducts itself politically has an effect on how Catholics are treated by different governments. I mean, it's almost unimaginable. Now, in Islam or Confucianism, it's actually easier because there's not an independent Power source. The problem is, I think in particular with integralism, is that in the real world, you'd get sort of bi directional uh, principal agent problems, right? The, the king or what have you would try to influence the papacy, the papacy would try to influence the king, and as what actually happened, uh, popes and kings fought like cats and dogs. Um, so yeah this so that's another problem as well um but the in general yes the the problem with religious pluralism there's just not a good solution to if they start to say we should tolerate they start moving away from um their position and if they say oh we're not going to tolerate then you start to get them committed to a level of violence that their religion prohibits it's it's like hayek said that the in the road to serfdom right that that the socialists will have to use means that the socialists themselves disapprove of, right? And the integralists will have to use means that the integralists themselves disapprove of.
3: Uh, thank you, Doctor. I appreciate your, your uh, talk here. I have a question. Are you familiar with Dr. Jordan Peterson and his work in this area? In um, the, I mean, uh, I know who Jordan
0: Peterson is, um, but... Um, Um, I don't know of his work on religious um, anti-liberalism. I I mean, I know he's kind of sort of a lot of broad work on sort of religion generally, but what do you think is kind of the chief insight uh, that could add um, um, that he has? Not anything specific, but um, if there's anything that you found helpful that maybe I should take a look at.
3: Well, he uh, inspired a, a... big conference in london several weeks ago called the arc conference the uh, alliance of responsible citizenship and it brought people in from all over the world Uh, and generally what they're trying to do is reinstill classical liberalism back into our culture and our societies with hopes that it stems some of the more adverse extremes of uh, what we've been seeing recently I'd want to I'd want to study that.
0: Um, Sometimes uh, Peterson's commitment to liberalism seems to me to flag a bit. But no, I want to I want to learn more.
3: Thank you, Dr. Kevin, for your talk. I really appreciated it. Uh, And for the younger generation of both civilians and
5: future politicians, how important do you feel it is for one to identify themselves as a liberal or an anti-liberal or anything in that category or regard?
0: are you worried um of of younger people whether they ought to self identify yes in other words i mean i think it depends on the the time and the place there's a certain kind of uh wisdom involved i mean this is something that i've often had to do uh in a, my profession which is overwhelmingly you know atheist um and you know i you, you can't of course you you hide uh your faith but i do think you have to be aware of the reaching people, right? It's not just being innocent as doves, but wise as serpents. And so I think that's something that you, you've kind of got to understand when to emphasize your identity, when to emphasize reaching out across difference. And I just think that takes a lot of, of practical wisdom. I know that pra- saying practical wisdom sounds good, but maybe it's not like a full answer, but I think that's, this is true.
5: <laughs> I understand. Thank you.
3: Yes, son. Um. This might be an apolitical or extrapolitical question asked to a political theorist. But one of the things that, uh, uh, Maxim, that somebody laid out is politics is downstream from culture. And you very, said very little in your talk about culture, except in the beginning you said that almost any civilization that's ever been studied had some sort of religious bonding amongst it. Come 20th century, maybe starting the 19th century, we get this broad uh, type of culture that doesn't have what I'd call a transcendent referent. And and that seems to change the game from what we've known historically that um, what it is that binds people culturally and morally before they even talk about any particular political ideology. And I just wondered how you looked at the dynamics of in our case they say, and I don't mean this ideologically, but a consumerist culture that really uh, in which people behave not starting with a particular political ideology, but just to satisfy their needs, I guess.
0: Yeah, um, so this is something I get on in a, onto in a later part of the book when I'm talking about transition. One central message of many people on the new right, but also religious anti-liberals in this country is not that politics is, or culture is upstream of politics, but the reverse. They say that modern conservatives have failed to change the culture because they didn't first change the state. And the use of state power is, is critical in, because ultimately they have an elite theory of social change. Right? And they say, look, we have to capture the levers of power. We have to um, get in charge, and then we can start to sort of try to be persuasive in certain ways. So they often advocate certain forms of, of soft power, maybe things like uh, Cass Sunstein-like nudges or what have you. Now, my own view on this is I actually in the book grant that, okay, well, maybe most people kind of go along with whoever their leaders are. But the problem is the leaders disagree, And we know, I think, like from Schumpeter's account of democracy that the cool thing about democracy is that these different elite groups can have sort of nonviolent transitions of power, right, which you'd oftentimes lose uh, in monarchies. So they do say, sure, use politics to control culture, but then they don't theorize the problems of elite disagreement. Um, And so that's another problem. I mean, if if they got anywhere near actual power in the, the GOP, I mean, you know... That's going to come up before voters. I mean, there's so many different checks that they would have to sort of fool with because there's too much, there's too much opposition. Um, so yeah, in general, the line, their line, is that culture's downstream of politics. They're inverting what has often been said. Um, but there's a lot of problems that I think they haven't grappled with. So we've been talking about religious anti-liberalism. Is there a atheistic... Anti uh, liberalism and could you talk about that a little well, bit? Well Marxism.
2: I mean so you know, would that would the, that uh, count as social was, is socialism
0: then just anti uh Atheistic anti-liberalism? No, no, no. There have been Christian socialisms, particularly, I think, most successfully in Latin America. If you look at the, the way that people use the term socialist in some places, you know, many of them will say, well, Sweden's socialist or what have you. I, I mean classical socialism, right? The, the government owning and operating the means of production. And some of these sort of more parliamentary folks, some of them actually were uh, Christians, but many of them uh, were not. And I so I see actually socialism as being the most... Uh, Atheistic, And of course, uh, many of the same criticisms that the religious anti-liberals make are ones that the the uh, secular anti-liberals have made. For instance, all of this stuff about, say, atomism and uh, excess individualism and alienation from society, I mean, these are things that socialists raised uh, all the time. And so there's actually a lot of disagreement or a lot of agreement between the different uh, wings and forms um, of anti-liberalism. But yeah, I do, I do see socialism is actually even beginning in many ways with hostility uh, to religion.
1: As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Eric Cohn.